Hey guys, before I jump into the episode today, I just want to say that Laughing Pig Theater, the group that I've been working with this year, has two really fun, exciting, wildly different from each other events coming up in March that I would really appreciate if you guys checked out. You can see us on Facebook and Instagram or just going to laughingpigtheater.com. I know you guys can do it while this episode is playing, so type that shit in. In the meantime, uh, you can listen to Andre Johnson, who is my guest this week. He is a friend of mine from high school who uh, pursued acting, dabbled a little bit in writing, directing, stage management. We talked a little bit about all of that. But predominantly, his focus is theater for young audiences, TYA. And he has a really cool outlook on the value of that and how to explore more delicate themes through that avenue. And we also spend some time dealing with just the idea of theater education and the pros and cons of that. So I think it's a great conversation. We have a lot of fun. So check out Laughing Pig Theater. But more importantly right now, check out Andre Johnson. Welcome to Serving Us Phoenix. I'm Tony Machete and I've got Andre Johnson. How's it going, Andre? Hello, I'm doing quite well. Wonderful. <laughs> Such a natural response. Yes. Love it. So, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me. Just kind of watching your whole career so far on your Facebook. Since we've known each other since high school, but I went to NAU, went to ASU, went to ASU after first going through Pima, right? Yeah, so we've been for like two and a half years. Right. So. So you kind of like took a different like path that I didn't have anything like to associated with. I didn't really even know anybody. I think who went to Pima, but seeing all the stuff that you post on Facebook, God bless Facebook. Like it's been really cool to kind of see all the different projects and stuff that you've been associated with. And I feel like I've still been kind of up to date on what you do. But I am kind of curious because what I realized when I was in theater in high school is that. I assumed while I was doing it that a lot of people were going to do what we did and like continue to do theater outside of high school because there were so many like talented people there. I'm like, oh, great. We're all going to do this together. Right. But then there's so few people who wanted to pursue it outside of that. And I was wondering, what at what point did you realize you wanted to continue in? It's kind of funny. When I realized I wanted to continue was when I was in my favorite year. <laughs> the one actual main stage theater show that I was in at Buena High School, 2008. It was a fun time. Actually, uh, I did have a little bit of a diversion for a little bit. I went to school initially for teaching, like elementary age, but I wound up screwing up my FAFSA and I got dropped from all my classes. So was this at U of A or was this at Pima as well? This is at Pima. Okay. So I just spent like a whole semester not really doing anything and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing this theater thing because I really like it. So I kind of, like, if I feel like if I hadn't messed up my FAFSA, I may have been a teacher right now instead of an actor. But I still want to be a teacher, so. (laughs) That's funny, because I'm sure there's a lot of teachers out there who are like, man, I could have been an actor right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just did the opposite, you know. (laughs) That's really interesting, though. So so why did you stray towards education first? What was your instinct on that? Uh, I've just always admired professors and teachers, like, as I was growing up. Because some of the most important people in my life have been my teachers. And I've always, 
I've always had the mindset that, you know, the, the kids coming up, the next generation, they're the ones that are going to be taking the reins eventually. And we, it's our responsibility to help them grow and become ethical, responsible, and intelligent adults. I, I don't know. I just want to be a part of helping shape young minds, which is part of the reason why I like to do theater for young audiences. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely something I want to talk to you about. But I'm, I'm curious. So talking of theater for young audiences and how you can inspire young people to do the arts, were you interested in, the, in theater before getting into high school? Is it something you've always kind of been thinking about? Or? Mm, I guess sort of, kind of not really. I don't know. I used to love live performances, but I never really thought about being an actor myself. I had like the typical, I want to be a doctor, no way I want to be like an officer, or I want to join the military like my mom. And then I happened to take a drama class one time when I was in like seventh grade, and I did that in front of like a group of kindergartners and first graders. And they enjoyed seeing me on stage. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. <laughs> this is what it must be like all the time. Exactly. So it's like, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so were you taking theater classes then from freshman year? I... In high school? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember if I took. Yeah, yeah. I think I took a freshman class. Yeah, and sophomore. And then I think junior. I'm not sure if I did it senior year. I feel like I must have. I feel like I didn't do it all four years. I don't really remember. <laughs> well, your senior year was my favorite year. That's yes. when, yeah, because I was in that with you, yeah. I think. So it must have been. But, okay, so you, it was stronger at the beginning of high school, then it kind of petered off. Was there anything that kind of pushed you away from it? Or did you just assume that, like, okay, this is a fun thing, but, like, I'm not going to do this? I don't know. I think it was just, like, kind of going elsewhere in my studies because it was also an elective because I think only had to take it, like, twice, like, Technically, you only had to do it twice, so I think I did it just to require two times, and then I just decided to take other electives to try to like round out, you know, what else I was doing. So I don't know. I honestly don't remember. That feels like it was so long ago. Yeah. I don't remember how many classes of theater I actually took. Jeez. <laughs> so, so you decided to get back into theater again when you uh, had that semester off. Mm -hmm. What was your first step like into that? Were you? tentative with it at all? Were you looking around town for it first? Or did you immediately go the Scholastic route? Uh, I just immediately went to school for it. Yeah, it was just like, okay, I remember I liked doing theater so much in high school. It was a lot of fun. I'm going to go ahead and apply for the theater program at Pima. It was super cheap. It was like $1,000 per semester, which is like a dream come true nowadays. Like, oh my God. Was that but, uh, a marked difference then from the education program? Uh, no, it was kind of about the same price as the education program. It's just going from Pima to ASU, where, like, your <laughs> one class is, like, two, $3,000 is ridiculous. So, I don't know. Just a little bit of advice. If you are straight out of high school, going to thinking about going to college, do community college first, because it's so much cheaper. And the education, honestly, is just as good, if not sometimes better. I don't know, my $70,000 worth of debt at a four-year program <laughs> might speak otherwise. So that is something I'm, I'm curious about, though, from somebody who took that path. Did you notice a discernible difference in the quality of class between the two? Mm. Throwing anybody on the bus, obviously. Yeah. I'd just say, like, in some ways, it was kind of, like, in some ways better, in some ways kind of, like, not so good. Um, the smaller class sizes, I feel, definitely helps. And the smaller uh, community in general at Pima helped everybody just kind of relate to each other more. It's like 
yeah, sure, there were like cliques and groups that hung out with each other all the time, but since there weren't so many people, everybody just kind of like communicated with each other and became friends with each other. And honestly, like the stuff I learned there fundamentally is pretty much the same as the stuff that I learned at ASU. It's just that they don't offer 300 and 400 level courses. But I will say that at ASU, there are some very specific classes that go much more like... Like in depth? Yeah, much more in depth. They're much more focused on very, very specific things, which I think is very valuable to learn after a while. But Pima was very good for the general education. And then if you want the more specific stuff, I feel like going to university is a better route. What specific stood out at you when you got to that 300 to 400 level? So let's see. I'm trying to think. So yeah, in the 300 level, I believe there was a specific stage management course, which I'm pretty sure was not offered at uh, Pima. And I didn't do the acting concentration, even though I am an actor. I just stayed in the general theater realm. So I just took whatever I kind of wanted. So I was able to take stage management, where I learned so much about so many things I never even thought about before as an actor. Like, there were so many other things. That type um, of class is humbling, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. It's like, honestly, any actors out there, if you feel like acting is really, really hard, try stage management. <laughs> stage management is the single hardest thing I've probably done in theater. Like, no lie. Um, but yeah, so there's that. Uh, other stuff was there. It's like there are programs where you specifically need to be in uh, main stage performances. So it's like you need to have on your curriculum that you've been in a play in order to graduate and stuff like that. Were there more opportunities to get on stage once you got to ASU? Yes, there were a whole lot more. Um, just the main stage, or like was there? I don't really know how their system works. Yeah. Overall, there were just a lot more opportunities. Uh, main stage. So at Pima, there were two shows per semester, so just four shows a year. Mm-hmm. At ASU, when I started anyway, it varies per year, but there's usually a minimum of five main stage shows. And I think when I first started, there were like seven. Wow. Yeah, and then. Uh, something that's also closely tied to the theater department is something called binary, which is a student-run. Yeah, you know about binary, but I guess to just explain it a little bit, student-run. It's like student. It's almost club-like in a way, um, but you can put forward original ideas to be performed in the binary space. Uh, you can write stuff yourself as a student. You can direct stuff yourself as students. Everything is just student-based. And they do roughly six or seven shows per year as well. So there are a whole lot of opportunities at ASU to do things. So I know that you ended up doing your capstone show through them. Was that your first time presenting an idea to be done? Mm, I, yeah, I guess technically yes. And honestly, I say technically because I, I worked at a place called Stories at Soar down in Tucson where we accept children's stories from schools that we visit and then we turn them into scripts and then we have to like present those scripts and if those scripts are good enough we can turn them into a play and then you know all this fun stuff but that's more like the kids imagination than our imagination so yeah I will say this is my first time presenting something that I created like almost completely by myself and then asked if I could get a production team had auditions gathered everybody to do everything that I needed to put on a show was it something you were concerned about rejection, or was that something that, I mean, it seems like at that point you would be probably pretty tight with a lot of people involved, or was it more a matter of just, like, arranging the details type of thing? Or? I would definitely say I was concerned about rejection because you have to give a little pitch to uh, be considered. I didn't have anything written yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
so, case, it's going to be so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, I presented my idea kind of based purely on good faith. It's like, okay, this is what I'm planning to do. I have, like, an excerpt of what the full script is going to be like, but it was only a few pages. It wasn't the entire thing. And I was just, I consider myself incredibly lucky that I did get picks. So... And, but that also lit a fire under me because I felt like if I didn't, I wouldn't have had as much motivation to continue and to eventually like finish writing, like do all this directorial stuff and be forced to learn even more about theater in general, which is another thing that uh, ASU is good for. In order to graduate, you have to do a senior project. And the senior projects, no matter what you do, are going to be pretty involved. But they're not, they don't have to be the same. I remember one friend of mine did critiques of shows, and she created an entire portfolio full of critiques. Um, you could write an original play and submit that as your final project. Um, you can have a main stage performance be your final project. And just what some people like to do, including myself, was create and direct and produce a show. Why did you go down that road? As somebody who... Even though you were taking a general theater courses, it seemed like you had always kind of had the mind of being a performer mainly. Why take a step back from that for the culmination of all your scholastic work so far? I, and this is just me personally, but I feel like a, a very good way to grow as a performer is to step back from performing in the first place and to uh, take on other aspects of theater that don't involve you acting all the time, you know? Having to step back and go into the part of writer and director uh, forced me to learn an entirely different skill set and forced me to see things from the eyes of, you know, people that I have never been in the position of before. So, you know, as a director, it's not, you know, really kosher to be like, okay, well, I want you to act exactly like this, and I'm going to get up and show you how to do this because this is what I had in mind for you and stuff like that. The temptation so. for that must have been incredible, <laughs> though, especially because it's your own, like, self-written work. You're like, I know exactly what I had in mind for this from beginning to end. This yeah. is what it was supposed to be. How do you separate yourself from that? Yeah, and that, that is very true. But uh, at the same time, as I was writing it, since I knew that I wasn't going to be acting in it myself, I forced myself to remember that, I needed to separate myself from my own words. And I needed to allow uh, my actors and for other people involved in the project to provide input. Because, you know, you can have all the ideas in the world, but that doesn't mean that they're the best, you know? <laughs> so it does. Like, <laughs> I am the best, what? <laughs> but no, it's like there were so many things that happened over the course of the show that were like, oh, this is a lot better than I originally imagined it would be. Let's go with that. And it really, really helps to uh, open your mind about the truly collaborative nature that is theater. And that's another thing that I fear people kind of fall into a trap of, is that um, it can be very easy to slip into the feeling that, you know, this is about me, like, the show is hinging on me, I need to do this, I need to do that. But it's like, there are so many people that are involved in every single show, even if it's a one-person show, like, one-actor show, rather. There are so many other people that are involved helping that one actor work. So I, I just feel a well-rounded education of everything is the most important thing that you could possibly have. How did you respond as a performer to being in a position of authority that comes along with being a director? Is that a natural thing for you? Did, were you ever um, second-guessing yourself as somebody who's been on the other side? And how did that go for you? Oh, boy. Yeah, that was kind of tough. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my personality, like, I'm naturally an introverted person, and I'm not a very aggressive person or anything like that, but I am very uh, thoughtful and thorough in what I do. 
So I feel like that is what helped me, uh, you know, go into the position of directing and my background of, you know, wanting to be like a teacher and everything because I was directing mostly freshmen and sophomores in this show who were like, this was their first show at ASU at all for some of them. So it was an opportunity for me to really test, okay, am I, how can I apply what I've learned towards teaching this new group of students who are coming in to the theater realm. What also helped tremendously was that my stage manager, uh, Brianna Rafiti, who is amazing by the way, <laughs> is the, I feel, a very good foil for me. Like where I'm not quite as aggressive, she is aggressive. <laughs> and where I would start to get into my head too much, she would like pull me back and be like, hey, this is not important, let's keep moving on and stuff like that. And that's another thing that I feel is important to uh, anybody thinking about being on the production side or the like offstage side of theater is to find people who are not exactly the same as you because they will help you see things that you never saw. Interesting. <laughs> and it's interesting that you you bring up the comparison of being a teacher and like your your desire to be a teacher with it. Just a couple episodes ago I was talking with uh, Bill Partland actually who oh, was yeah. Yeah, and one of the things he said was uh, when he was transitioning from being a director to a teacher he said it was kind of a rocky start at first, but the thing that kind of made it click for him was he realized he had to direct the class and not just teach it. Right. Would you say that you've learned lessons from like your short time as a director that you think you could apply to a classroom? Oh yeah, I totally think that I do. Because in my off time, I would constantly be thinking about ways of, okay, how can I possibly, uh, excuse me, I got a burp, hold on. Oh God, uh, did you get it? Yeah, let's go <laughs> but um, in my off time, I'm always thinking about uh, essentially lesson plans. Like, yeah. okay, what do I want to do today to kind of help my actors focus? Or what, yeah. what do I want to do today to help them with team building? Or what I want, what I want to do today to help them with line learning? As I was going through all this, even though I never asked for it, the actors would constantly tell me, you know, that's a really cool idea. This really helped me out a lot. Thank you so much for like sharing that with me and everything. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I actually do know that what I'm doing is helping. And that's great. <laughs> so say at this point in your college career, like while you were still a student, were you planning on getting out and immediately jumping into something like Child's Play? Yes. Yeah. Child's Play was like immediately what I wanted to do. Granted, it took me a little bit to get to that part. I did do a stage reading with them immediately, which was nice. But then I had an entire year where I did not work with them. So I'm working with them again. It's very nice that I am. But um, it's always been my primary goal because what I, even the kind of stuff that I like to watch is TYA. Like Avatar The Last Airbender is one of my favorite <laughs> shows ever. Almost every time I go to see a movie, it's usually an animated movie or a movie geared towards families or children. And it's because I often find that that uh, specific medium not only is very entertaining for one, but it's also like, it feels the most emotional a lot of the time. And it often carries with it the, uh, the best lessons that I feel that I've been able to carry through my life. Like even if the overall movie isn't all that great, I feel like the lessons like uh, Ferdinand's I saw very recently, it's like in retrospect, could have been better, but the overall like message of the movie was just so powerful and moving to me that I would gladly watch it multiple times. Do you feel like it's because oftentimes with that there's just a l less subtlety, I guess, in what they want the message to be? Do you think just that like being able to present it 
straightforwardly and say like this is what you want we want you to take away from this and this is how it should make you feel do you think that's just something that is beneficial or? yeah I think that's definitely part of it I think the other part is that well yes in a, a lot of adult fiction or like things geared towards adults there can be like morals and lessons and everything it's not as commonplace in our society in general to try to teach adults like any kinds of lessons. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, because like every, I don't know, I, I try to like, I like analyzing movies a lot. Yeah. And there definitely are moments where, uh, and movies geared more towards like teenagers slash adults and everything. There are those moments where it's like, okay, here's the lesson of the entire movie. Here's what you should be doing and everything. But I often feel like it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like it's as important, you know? I'm not entirely sure why. It just doesn't feel like it's quite as important. And I, I think it's because uh, we are very geared and focused towards making sure kids get these lessons, and we just kind of assume that adults already know them for some reason. You know? That's really interesting. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. And that, uh, I guess a lot of, like, uh, maybe that's why movies that I guess are more adult-leaning are oftentimes maybe more cynical and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I, and you're right, a little bit more specific in what they're trying to teach you and that... And just that the scope of it is not very big because they, you assume you should already know of the value of sharing and the value right. of being a friend and stuff like that. But right. maybe we do need to be reminded. That is super interesting. So now that you are in the more professional world of TYA, how, how does that look for you as kind of your overall career scope? Where do you want to go from here with it? Um, let's see. I'm actually... At the moment, I'm kind of pulling away from the acting aspect. <laughs> and that's partially because I feel like I need to get out of my head more. I have, I carry with me a lot of self-criticism a lot, which I'm working through like very hard like every day of my life. I'm definitely getting much better at it nowadays than I used to be. But um, something about the other side of everything just feels much more appealing to me now. Like something about, you know, writing or something about directing or just being like an aid to, uh, like I guess the actors on stage who are like conveying the story. I want to be the one that's more not in the limelight so much now, you know. And like I kind of go through that ebb and flow all the times. So like sometimes I don't really want to be in the forefront. Sometimes I just want to be out there the entire time. You know, it's just I don't know. It's like a tug of war, you know. That is interesting though, because I mean, you you started off that that whole statement by saying that you carry a lot of self criticism. I feel like an actor almost kind of has the safety net of being able to blame the direction or blame the script <laughs> when something does wrong. Being the person who's writing or who's directing, I feel like you, you kind of shoulder a lot more of the opportunity for criticism. So is that something that you consider or is that something that you're not really worried about? Huh. You know, I feel or did like... I just plant that seed right now and you're just... Gonna... Oh, yeah, no, actually, I hadn't yeah. really thought about that. Because as... So I'm not a person who will innately put blame on anybody else for anything. And that is something that I'm also still trying to work through because as a result of that, I usually take all the blame for myself, which is not healthy. <laughs> like, in my opinion, if uh, somebody says that this word choice was bad or this directorial decision was bad or like whatever was bad, I feel like art as a whole is just so subjective that it's like I can't blame anybody for making a bad decision because it's only bad in the eyes of that specific viewer to somebody else it could be brilliant you know um, and as an actor I take it upon myself as it's my responsibility to honor the words that the writer wrote 
and to honor the direction that you know the director gave me to uh, you know stand in that light that the lighting designer specifically put there for me and to do all this kind of stuff you know and if for whatever reason we get a criticism about one thing or the other I'm like well it's not their fault like maybe I just didn't do a good enough job conveying how this exactly was supposed to work out. Would you expect the same from the other actors you perform with? If, if one of your fellow actors um, gets criticized for their performance, would you, I guess, say the same of them and say, well, they probably should have you know, picked up on their cue a little bit faster? Hmm. I don't know. That's an interesting thing about... I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't... I feel like I wouldn't say that one of my fellow actors should have done this or should have done that because I mean we all have you know our off days it's live theater like stuff happens every once in a while I feel like it would just have to be like how the actor is just as a person (laughs) when it comes to that in all honesty because if it's somebody who is like kind of holier than thou and somebody who thinks that they're like above everybody and then they're making all these weird decisions that the director you know didn't want them to do and I'm like okay that actor is just so full of themselves that they think that they know how this play should go even though you know that's not how this was envisioned to be in the first place um but if it's somebody I see who is like honestly trying somebody who is uh giving their all every day and like maybe one day they missed a cue or another day they dropped a line by accident it's like oh it happens like we all do it it's just it's part of what comes with theater, you know? So in that case then, so if if the actor shouldn't necessarily be blamed because uh, they they are giving it their all and they are they are doing their best and they're just maybe having a bad day or that's a miscommunication, and if the other um, elements of it shouldn't be blamed because the actor could maybe um, be the one who is responsible for taking care of those, is it easy for you to forgive yourself in that situation? Or do you feel like you are the type of actor who does deserve to shoulder the blame? <laughs> No, um, I, and this, uh, again, uh, since I've been working on it so much, uh, I have gotten a lot better at forgiving myself whenever I mess anything up. Because I remember back in the past, if I messed something up, I would beat myself up over it, like, yeah. constantly. But now it's like, oh, I sang that note really flat. Oh, well. Or, like, I, I, like, dropped that prop when I was supposed to, like, throw it up into the air. It's like, it happens. Like, you laugh about it. It happened one time. And 99% of the time, the audience has no idea that you did something wrong in the first place. So it's like, I don't, I don't see the value in beating yourself up over something. As long as you take note and say, okay, I know what I did wrong. I won't do it again. And if it does happen again, that's okay. Just try to make sure it comes out right, you know? Now, not, to, <laughs> not to nitpick or psychoanalyze, but... Both of those kind of hypothetical examples you said seem like there's some things that have happened to you recently. It's like singing a note flat and picking up and dropping a thing instead of throwing it. Is that accurate <laughs> to say? It's something that you've done that, yeah, that, you, well, that you'd like to brush off and, and say <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore, but there's still enough in, the t- in front of your head that you can bring them up right now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, the I reason I bring it, I don't need to like beat you over the head with, the, with it or anything, but I, I, I just ask because I feel like those lessons are so like easy to think about and say like okay we should just move on of course we should move on but in practice it's so hard to get those little things out of your head yeah so i just how do you reconcile that yeah uh i'm in like a a micro musical that you could call it right now uh called the snowy day a child's play and i i feel like part of the 
part of what's helping me get over things a lot more easily is the frequency with which we do our shows. Because we do, we do shows six days a week, and the majority of those days we have two shows a day. So it's like, if I beat myself up, and I'm also like the main character, I'm the one who runs around doing a, <laughs> just everything constantly, and it's only a three-person cast, all of us are constantly busy doing something. And honestly, at the end of every show, I'm like, if something didn't go wrong, that feels like a miracle. <laughs> So it's like, you almost expect it after a while. And it's like, when you have a show like that where there are so many possibilities for anything to go wrong, it's like, okay, if something does go wrong, it's not a big deal. And I feel like that's just something that you need to carry into something that doesn't have maybe as long of a run, you know? Like uh, a lot of school shows only have two weekends or sometimes even only one weekend. Yeah. So if you mess up one of your like seven shows, that's gonna feel kind of tough because you only have seven shots at this. But then when you're like in this kind of professional setting where you have 60 shows, it's like, <laughs> especially for like young kids who are like, they're not going to be critically analyzing every single little thing that you do. They're just there to enjoy the storyline and everything. So it's like, it's okay if you don't sound the greatest while you're singing. And it's okay if you like throw something across the stage and it bounces off into the audience. It's like, whatever. <laughs> so let's talk about the snowy day for a minute though. So this is not only TYA, but it's really meant for... Uh, a younger uh, like even spectrum of kids so is that the type of thing you have in mind when you're thinking of 2A or is this something that's uh, kind of harder for you to adjust to hmm. just the, the level of, the, of performance I guess that's expected um, <laughs> uh, yeah uh, the snowy day I feel is probably intended for the youngest audience that I've ever been like a part of it's intended for as young as three years old yeah and honestly, that is something that I never considered when I went into TYA. I always considered it at least kindergarten or like first grade and older than that. Um, so being a part of the show has been quite a learning process because it is very much, uh, I feel like it's, there, it, there is intricacy that needs to be played upon, but it's more about like the big grand kind of showmanship of everything. And it's kind of like, you have to wear your emotions 100% entirely on your sleeve the entire time of the show. And um, just the amount of physical activity that takes place during it and just all the different things that are going on. It's like, it's, it is 100% the most hectic show that I've been a part of. But that's also not strange for TYA because TYA is hectic all the time. So uh, I guess that's another thing I will say. If you want a show that will make you work out and like make you sweat a lot, get into theater for young audiences because you will not stop moving like ever. <laughs> but um, uh, I guess for, for me personally, I'm not sure how I would write or direct a show for audiences quite that young. So that's still something that I need to study a little bit more. But for me personally, it's more like... I would try to gear things more towards maybe 10 years old and up, but that's just my own personal style. So, Is there anything about that age range that you think stands out to, or is it just the, the ability to comprehend? Uh, I guess just the ability to comprehend, because um, actually now that I think about it, my senior project I feel like I wrote with an intended audience of like 8 years old and up, but uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to tell a show that can be as meaningful as something like The Snowy Day without risking it being too simple, mm. you know? Because I don't want... That, that's my one fear of a TYA is that I never want to make a piece that I feel is talking down to kids. 
because kids know what you're talking about. Like you don't need to simplify things for them. But um, of course, the younger you, the younger you are, like the harder it's going to be to understand more complex uh, storylines or more like complex words, like even just words and stuff like that. So I don't know. It's just. It's just me trying to figure out yeah, where no, my absolutely. style fits in. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's, there's tons of room to explore in that whole situation, that whole genre. Um, I do want to bring up, though, something I am curious about. and the, I mean, the recent review that came out of Snowy Day. Oh, yeah, um, I exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's something that I think a lot of people had a really strong reaction to. And it raises the interesting question of, like, not only what you brought up when, when you shared it, when you posted it, but just, I guess, when is that expectation... Like, going to play out, like, when is that okay? Because uh, I know that, like, I mean, uh, you as an actor, you've done some stuff that does have, like, more to do with your uh, your race and your oh, background. Yeah. yeah, so it's, it's interesting. It's, I feel like there's got to be some kind of balance between when to do that and when not to. I don't know what, I don't even know what I'm, what I'm asking, I guess, but I'm just curious, like, kind of what your reaction is to it and your thought process behind that of, like, sometimes it doesn't have to have anything to do with the show, but sometimes you want it to be, and you want it to be something that, that does expose that side. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, I guess for anybody who doesn't know, uh, there was a review about the snowy day that came up that um, while they did have some like legitimate things in there, I felt, uh, they talked about a few things that were just kind of troublesome. Yeah. Part of it was the reviewer felt that it would lack a lasting impact for kids, which we 100% disagreed with. Yeah, for sure. And the other possibly more contentious part is that uh, there were... The show is consistent of an all-black cast. Yeah. The Snowy Day is based off of a series of books that stars a, uh, a black child named Peter, mm-hmm. and it's just him growing up and going through life. Yeah. And this reviewer... I should say, sorry to digress through, but the, the books themselves, they're essentially picture books. Like, there's nothing yeah. much to them beyond, like, the, the story he's playing in the snow, kid playing in the snow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the, the writer... Uh, a lot of people have noted is was a white man and he was inspired by simply I believe he was inspired by simply seeing just a young black boy and his mother and he just got he just really wanted to write stories about them so he did and this uh, specific reviewer said something about uh, he wasn't sure what the purpose of the show was because it didn't talk about the black experience at all and just in that statement alone, there are just all these issues <laughs> that happen. But uh, as far as that, like, the initial question is immediately, what is the black experience? Like, what is that? Of course, what he's trying, like, what he's saying is there is no stereotypical representation of an oppressed black family in this storyline whatsoever, uh, which is something that media has perpetuated as being almost universally true for every like black family out there and it has become so pervasive in our society that seeing a family that is black and have their stories not be related to race whatsoever seems to be kind of a shock for some people weirdly enough um but our and, like, we as a whole cast and, like, a whole production team have talked about this and raved about this, like, so much. But um, my specific uh, response to that was, aside from, you know, like, the whole what is a black experience thing, when are we going to get to a point in time where 
we as you know black actors or actors of color at all because this could apply to also like uh, Mexican actors or uh, like Asian actors Jewish actors even though well, I don't know Judaism is a race and a religion I guess I don't know I, I keep forgetting about that yeah it's a whole thing pretty much any actor that's not like white and male as well because yeah, like yeah everything yeah because of even a story about women has to be about how they're a woman and it can't just be about them existing um so we're like when are we going to get to a point where we can finally stop educating everybody about the obvious differences between you know what it means to be black in an american society and what it means to be white in an american society because yes those differences do exist like people are treated differently based purely on like the color of their skin and everything. But um, the idea that an entirely black cast needs to always be telling, needs to always be educating the differences between race is incredibly unfair because it refuses to normalize, you know, black people in general. Like, because if you go to see a play with only white people, do you ever ask yourself a single time, how does this pertain to the whiteness? Or how does this pertain to the maleness? It's like, no, you can go see a story about white people and it can be about literally anything and it's totally acceptable. We need to have that for other races as well. Like we need to be able to have a story about a young black boy and his black parents and his black friends just living life and experiencing normal things if we ever want to normalize blackness in America. And, oh, I, uh, that, I feel that just needs to be the next logical step if we ever want to um, finally make a, make a breakthrough in our rocky race relations in America. <laughs> <laughs> My least favorite ice cream flavor, rocky race relations. Uh, uh, so as somebody who is trying to lean more into the writing side of things, especially for young audiences, I mean, obviously there is still room for those type of stories. Uh, you know, there should be room to express the different thing, the obstacles and stuff that people don't don't face because they need to see that as well. Um, but how do you strike that balance? Like, if you were to kind of approach this, it doesn't have to be in a literal sense, obviously. But like, how, how do you, as somebody who wants to be able to educate kids uh, and and kind of inspire them and, and lead them down this path of self-expression? Um, how do you approach that balance of being a, of, of addressing the differences but not dwelling on them? I guess uh, it is a tricky road to navigate, honestly. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the responsibility has to come down to, uh, honestly, like parents, because uh, something that I've learned at ASU is that apparently studies have been done that children who grow up in like white families do not learn about race. They're never told about race, and in one way that's completely understandable because the parents don't want their kids to grow up thinking that, you know, anybody's different because of the color of their skin and everything, which is, you know, a noble endeavor, but it's also misguided. Whereas children who grow up in families that are not white are made starkly aware of, you know, what the difference is between them and, like, their white friends and everything. And they grow up with that knowledge of, okay, this is different and this is why this is different. And that's, that's just important knowledge to know. It's like you don't need to feel bad that things are different because it's not inherently your fault just for existing. But you need to understand the history behind 
why things are different for people that look differently from each other. Um, and then once you have that knowledge, you understand that and you can comprehend how things are different for people, you can start, I feel, navigating life with a complete understanding of what it's like for you know people that are separate from you. Like, uh, I mean, it took me a long time to realize that women were treated so massively different than women were. It took me like up until I started going to ASU to realize that. And I was like, I started like listening to my friends' stories. Most of my friends are women and they would tell me all these stories. And I'm like, I don't think I have any female friend who has not been sexually assaulted at some point in their life. And I'm like, wow, this is terrible. <laughs> so it's like, um, we just need to not be afraid to let our kids know about these kinds of things. And then once our children are aware that these differences are there, I feel that's when we can start allowing them to uh, express themselves as freely as they possibly can. And uh, giving, giving stories that allow kids to see that there are people out there who look like them, who come from similar backgrounds as them, who are doing anything that they want to. So when it comes to, I guess, kind of putting, putting that out there into the minds of children and stuff like that, there, there can be people having the same experiences and that aren't maybe so great and there are, are starkly different than other people having, but that it's still okay and you can still enjoy life in so many different ways. Do you feel like that falls on just like society in general? Or does it have to be the artists? I mean, how do you, how do you approach something like that? Huh. You know, I feel like it's a mixture of both. It falls on artists partly because artists are such large figures in society. And that's always something that I've had. Uh, I have always held the belief that artists need to be role models for people. And I know that's asking a lot a lot of the time, especially since artists are also just regular people. But for people who, like, um, who purposefully try to attain that level of fame and popularity, I feel that it is very important that they remind themselves that they are being looked upon by millions upon millions of people and they need to be kind of like good just representations of like what a good human being is being. And a person I was going to talk about a minute ago was Terry Crews. <laughs> so I'm sure everybody knows who Terry Crews is, the father from uh, Everybody Hates Chris, President Camacho from... Uh, uh, what, what was that? Idiocracy. Idiocracy. Right? Yeah. There we go. Brooklyn Nine. He's in everything. Yeah, he's in right. everything. He was in freaking. Uh, yeah, he's just he's all over the place, and he's he's wonderful in everything that he does. And one of the reasons I look up to Terry Crews so much, aside from the fact that he is genuinely just a wonderful human being, is that he plays a lot of roles that are stereotypically not played by black men, especially like black men who are who appear as masculine as he does because he is just such a large guy he is not at all afraid to uh do feminine things on stage in front of millions of people he's not afraid to play characters that are extremely out there if anything his character in everybody hates chris is like probably the most stereotypical character that he played but that was still like really overdone and over the top and everything so it's like that's hardly even a thing right there I feel like rep representation like that is what children need to see um, like we need to see that black people are capable of being more than you know aspiring athletes or you know want to be rappers or, you know, they're not always just going to be the sassy best friend or whatever. It's like, you know, they can be 
the president, even if it is, you know, 500 years in the future when everything is all run down. It's like uh, they can be like anything that they just want to be because it makes them happy to be that. Um, that's something that I myself have struggled a lot with growing up. Is uh, I never realized it until maybe a couple years ago. But most of the shows and movies that I watched starred people who all looked the same. They were like mostly white, mostly a lot of men, occasionally some women. And if you did see people of color, there were like maybe one or two of them in the cast. And they were usually heavily stereotyped. And then growing up having seen all that, and seeing that I personally related more to what all the white characters liked and all the white characters were doing all the time more so than the black characters or the Latinx characters or anybody else, it put this idea in my head that maybe I wasn't black enough, which is a very strange and not okay idea for a kid to be thinking about, which is not, you know, helped by society saying that you know, anybody who's not white who acts a certain way acts white, you know, like telling, I was told in high school quite a bit that I acted white. And at first I thought it was funny. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, wait, that's extremely racist. And it's like, just because I don't adhere to a certain sets of stereotypes that you associate with blackness, that does not mean that I'm not black, you know? So we just need to see more people of color and my, especially women of color, like Jesus God, um, <laughs> doing things that are not limited to very specific categories. Like, you know, we need an Indiana Jones, you know? We, we need people like Han Solo or Luke Skywalker, stuff like that. Thank God we have Finn. <laughs> oh, thank God we have I love it. On that note of profundity, um, I'll get the last couple of questions I'd like to ask because we're running low on time. But first off, uh, just is there any other artist in town? Doesn't have to be theater practitioners at all. Just anybody you want to give a shout out to? Well, I mean, shout out to Child's Play because they're pretty <laughs> great artists in town. Uh, I know several. Let's see. Okay, we get when. <laughs> when when is this podcast going to go up exactly? Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay. So uh, I have a friend, uh, Madison West. She also goes by May West. Directed a show called. Uh, Queer Agenda is going to be performed at, it's called Phoenix Hostel? Oh. Yeah, the Phoenix Hostel, uh, Friday at 6.30. This Friday, which is going to be the 17th? 16th. 16th. Yeah. Yep, so uh, she directed that. It is a, I believe it is a play about, you know, questioning gender norms and, you know, heteronormativity and everything. And I think it's very, very cool. Awesome. I'm going to go see it. Anybody else at the top here? Oh man, there's so, like there's so many names to think about. There's like some local playwrights. A friend of mine, uh, Osiris Quinn, is a playwright. One of her plays is going to be showcased. I also believe this coming weekend, nice. downtown Phoenix. I forget where exactly. I think it's in the library somewhere. Oh. Um, shoot, there's just there's too many to think about right now. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's a good place to start. But for yourself, any personal projects around the corner we should look out for? Uh, me personally, I have like a YouTube channel. It's not yeah, at we all didn't even about. Get a chance to talk about it oh yeah, that's right. Well, it's okay because I'm still trying to figure out how to perform for that. <laughs> but no, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's called Cascore Gamer. <laughs> I came up with it when I was like 13 years old, so that's why it sounds all weird. But no, on there, I just like I do let's plays of video games. I just kind of do video game related stuff all the time. 
and like I said, I'm in Snowy Day. We have public performances every Saturday and Sunday all the way until March 11th, and they're performing at the Tempe Center for the Arts. I just started up writing a potential novel that hopefully I will actually finish. <laughs> is it a YA novel, or is it...? Yes. Okay. It's also a virtual reality novel, because I'm tired of virtual reality stories being kind of garbage. Fuck <laughs> Ready Player One. Yeah, I, uh, I'm trying to finish reading that, and it is not easy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's pretty much all I'm doing right now. Last thing I'd like to ask is if you had to boil down kind of one solid piece of advice you'd want to give someone who is going down your same path you know, on their first day of it, what would you want to tell them? Uh, first and foremost, don't give up. <laughs> if you're still in the education system, go to community college first. <laughs> Most definitely. In the beginning, audition for whatever you possibly can. And have faith in yourself. Have confidence in yourself. Like, it's a rough and tough road to follow. But if it's something that you're truly passionate about and you're truly happy about, at least you'll be smiling while you're starving, you know? <laughs> at least you'll be smiling when you're starving. That's the mantra. Don't give up. Believe in yourself. Audition for everything. And go to community college. Yes. Thank you, Andre, so much for your time. Of course. Thank you. Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistsphx at gmail.com.